Well, things are a little bit more normal this week. I walked in the right way, didn't I? So anything that bad happened last week to you, I'm sorry about that. Let's just chalk it up to bad luck. No, no, we're not talking it up to bad luck or any kind of superstitions. But it was incredibly interesting, but at the same time sad, to see how Micah in Judges chapter 17 was gripped, not just by idolatry, but by superstitions. And superstitions are there because they give us a sense of control, they give us a sense of safety, and they give us a sense of protection when we adhere to and follow superstitions, as crazy and as illogical as they are, they try to give people peace, security, and comfort in a time that's very uncertain for them. But the only place that we can find true safety, true peace, true comfort is obviously in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Only he can provide for us an eternal safety and a present-day safety not superstitions. Micah did not learn that lesson. And as we get into chapter uh, 18, we find in the first few verses of chapter 18 that uh, we are not getting any better. If you remember from chapter 17, the theme of that chapter was there was no king in the land, so everybody did what? What was right in their own eyes. The same exact thing is happening, and in fact, in verse 1 of chapter 18, it says, in that day there was no king. In that day there was no king. There was no one giving them spiritual advice, spiritual leadership, any guidance whatsoever. They were all left to themselves, and when left to themselves, it does not breed fruitfulness and peace and harmony. It breeds contention and self-righteousness and everyone wanting their own way when there's no leadership. But we have a new group of people entering into the mix at this time. So let me just read the first several verses of chapter 18 of the book of Judges. In those days there was no king in Israel. And in those days the tribe of the people of Dan were seeking for themselves an inheritance to dwell in, for until then no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. So the people of Dan sent five able men from the whole number of their tribe, from Zahorah and from Eshtal, to spy out the land and to explore it. And they said to them, Go and explore the land. And they came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah, and lodged there. When they were there by the house of Micah, they recognized the voice of a young Levite, who they turned aside and said to him, Who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? And what is your business here? Wow, they had a lot of questions for him. And he said to them, this is how Micah dealt with me. He has hired me, and I've become his priest. And they said to him, inquire of God, please, that we may know whether the journey on which we are setting out will succeed. And the priest said to them, go in peace. Your journey on which you go is under the eye of the Lord. Now, at first glance, you notice I kind of titled this section, Taking the Easy Way. Because the tribe of Dan has just done this. They are taking the easy way out. And we have to go all the way to chapter 1, verse 34, to see the context on why I feel they're taking the easy way out. Because what they're doing right now is that they're having a hard time possessing the land that they were given, and so they sent some spies to figure out where's the easiest place for us 
to reside and take over. When we go back to chapter 1, the very start of this entire 400 years history, we read in verse 34 and 35, the Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the plain. See, God had given this land that the Amorites were in to the tribe of Dan, but the tribe of Dan found that it was really tough to get rid of them. And so the Amorites were stopping the tribe of Dan from possessing the land that God had given them. So the Danites, in chapter 18, probably hundreds of years after chapter 1, come to the realization, we need to find a better place because the place God gave us, it's hard to take those people on. So let's go to a place where the people are easy to take on. And we'll do this the right way. Take a couple representatives, probably five very strong individuals, send them out, on their journey, we're told in the first few verses that they happen upon the hill country of Ephraim, which would again, from our perspective, be north and west in Israel. The hill country that they came from was kind of further south. But they were having trouble overcoming the inhabitants of the land. So they took the easy way out, tried to find a new place to set up home. So they start traveling and they end up at the house of Micah and they recognize a voice. Now, we're not told they recognize his voice as they knew him, but it probably was his accent. You can tell when someone is from the deep south of Texas versus Minnesota. When they're talking to each other, it may be a completely different language at times, but yet they're still speaking English, but you'd recognize. Remember, if I hear someone say, Chicago, I'm going to go at least say hi to the guy because they're probably from Chicago not Chicago. And so there's an immediate recognition. So on their journey, these five spies who are taking the easy way out, they should have fought for the land that God had given them and depended upon God. Instead, they're scared of the Amorites. The Amorites are a tough cookie to crack. So they leave and they recognize the voice. And so they start inquiring of this young man that's in the household of Micah. Hey, who are you? Where are you from? What are you doing here? Just some basic questions. Now he arrived there, if you remember from last week, is Micah was having a crisis of faith. He believed in idols, the superstitions that idols were going to protect him, and the superstition that if he hired a priest, he would prosper. So he was adding to himself all these good luck charms, and his good luck charm begins to speak to these Danites, these spies. Now, I don't think Micah or the priest was afraid that the Danites were going to inhabit their land. Micah was already there, already their land, and the tribes were already settled there. The Danites were looking for an easy target to possess in their land. But what's interesting in this process is that the priest just sort of, yeah, everything's going to be fine. The, Lord, the eyes of the Lord are on you. Not really a ringing endorsement that, yeah, what you're doing is right, it's just, you know what? God will see what you're doing. God sees exactly what you're doing. I think if the priest had been connected with God, his question would have been, why are you not in the land God gave you? Why are you traveling days north to take over a land which God did not give you? The Danites, I understand, it was hard for them to do what they were doing. It was, it was a stressful time. It was full of challenge to take on that land. But God gives us tremendous challenges for a reason, to test our faith and our commitment to his ways above our ways. Jesus, in fact, said in Luke chapter, 20, uh, Luke chapter 9, 
He said to all of them, all of the disciples that were following him, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The Christian life, obeying God, is never easy. It is never a cakewalk. It is never simple. It is never a part-time endeavor. It is never, it's in my pocket. It's done. It's done. It's easy. It never is. There is always a cost involved in following God's plan. Always a cost involved. It may cost friends. It may cost money. It may cost your time. It may cost a relationship. It may cost your emotions. It may cost something you really, really like. And Jesus likens it to pick up your cross and follow me. It'd be much like today saying, pick up your electric chair and follow me because you're going to end up dying for your faith. So in a sense, in a human way, I can't blame the Danites saying, yeah, God gave me that land. We've seen all the other tribes doing really well, but they don't understand how tough the Amorites are. They're really, really tough. And so maybe God wants us to take the easy way out and conquer an easy land. Jesus more than once alluded to the idea that following him was going to be tough, that there were big paths that lots of people take, and you could take that path, or you could take the narrow path, which is uncertain to you. I understand that. But God says, when you walk in uncertainty as my child, I will give you certainty. I will give you peace and comfort and joy and protection. You will be better than okay. You will thrive in your decision to follow me. You'll thrive. So the Danites inquire of the priest. The priest says, yeah, everything's going to be great. I don't think he understands what's going on. And then we have the next context happening in verse uh, 7 through verse 10 of Judges chapter 18. Then the, first fi then the five men departed and came to Lash and saw the people who were there and how they lived in security after the matter in the manner of the Sidians. Now, the Sidians are descendants of Ham and Canaan, who are descendants of Noah. And if we know anything about the descendants of Ham, are they righteous people or unrighteous people? Generally. Uh, they're the ones who gave us all the Hittites and Ittites and everybody that Israel is having struggles with, even to this day in Palestine. Even to this day. And so these are not God-fearing people who are just doing their own thing. They may be alone right now in this geographical area, but they're not innocent, peaceful inhabitants. They serve one God and only one God, Baal. Baal. And so they come upon these people, which would be kind of north and west, but they were quiet and unsuspecting, lacking nothing that is on the earth and possessing wealth, and how and they were very far from the Sidians and had no dealings with anyone. So verse 7 is setting up the stage that there's this group of people that, wow, they got a lot of things going for them. The first thing they have going for them is they got some really cool stuff. And the second thing they got going for them is they don't know anybody around them. And if they don't know anyone around them, do you kind of see the conclusion that the Danite spies are going to have? Maybe we can take them because they have no friends to protect them, no one to come to their aid and safety, no one to answer the call, help. They're going to be on their own. 
So verse 8 continues, And when they came to the borders at Zorah and Eshthal, their brothers said to them, What do you report? And so now the spies have gotten back to the rest of the Danites, because the Danites are moving north and west to meet them. What's your report? And they said, Arise, let us go up against them, for we have seen the land, and behold, it is very good. And you will, uh, and will you do nothing? Do not be slow to go to enter and possess the land. As soon as you go, you will come to an unsuspecting people. The land is spacious, for God has given it into your hands, a place where there is no lack of anything that is in the earth. Perhaps they were exaggerating. You're going to lack nothing that's in the earth. It's all in that one little town. All you've got to do is conquer it, and all the territory is yours, and they have no one to help them. They are an easy target. They're taking the easy way out. Their target is not that city, not that territory. The target God gave them was the plains and the hill country that they're having a tough time taking from the Amorites. But it's very true to us that we love taking the easy way out. We don't want to do what is hard and painful and costly. We like the easy way out. If Jesus took the easy way out, we wouldn't have salvation. We'd still be lost in our sin. But he took the hard road. He took the tough choice. He did what the Father asked of him, and he did it willingly without grumbling or complaining, knowing that it would cost his life. I cannot imagine anything harder than saying, God, you may take my life. For a people who hate me and curse me and ignore me and deny me, I want to give my life for them. Jesus never took the easy way. And so he can say, follow me, because he actually went that tough road, doing the tough thing, doing the right thing at all costs, including his own life. Now, the Danites had not seen that, obviously, before. That was going to happen a good 1,500 years in the future. But they had seen it all around them, tribe after tribe, taking the land that God had given them and taking it over and making it their home. They had a tough time. So they took the path of least resistance, and took on a new city that gave them more wealth in their mind than the Amorites ever would. Without reading the rest of the story, how do you think that's going to go for them? Just, just knowing how God interacts with people, how do you think it's going to go for them? Do you think they're going to have that blessing of the priest and that's going to cover it and they're just going to do fine? God's going to say, you know what? I understand what I asked you to do was hard, but you know what? I'll give you a break. Just do what you want. No, of course not. He's going to hold them to it. They're going to fall into their sin, and they're going to end in judgment. We already know what's going to happen. God is very predictable in that sense. When you deny him and reject him, he has a response to his people to make life uncomfortable until you repent, to make it hard until you obey, to make it stressful until you cry out to him for help. Idols and superstitions will not save Micah, and it will not save the tribe of Dan. 
only God will save them. But you might say, oh, Tim, what are they supposed to do? They couldn't dispossess the Amorites. It was too hard for them, so they had no other option. What do you mean they had no other option? They had one amazing option right in front of them, and that was, as a people, to go before God and say, help. Help. And God is not going to turn a deaf ear upon a cry for help. He's going to answer it every single time. He's going to answer it no matter where you are in the depths of despair. He will answer that call of, help me, Father, help. And who knows how the help would look. Maybe he'd raise up another judge like Samson. Maybe he'd raise up another judge like Jephthah or Gideon or Deborah. Maybe he'd raise up a completely different, obscure judge that would lead them to victory. But it starts with, Lord, help. I put no confidence in anyone but you, Father. Only you can help, even if it is hard. So the spies give their report. The report sounds pretty easy. The report is simple. I do this. I'm going to take possession of an incredibly wealthy land. Thank you, God. Answer to my prayers. It is not an answer to their prayers because they have disobeyed God at the very start of the chapter. Verse 11 tells us a little in-between story before they get to that city that they want to conquer. So 600 men of the, Dan, of the tribe of Dan, armed with weapons of war, set out for Zorah and Eshtal, and went up and encamped at kareth Jerim in Judah. On this account, that place is called Maniadon to this day, which means just uh, a camping area for Dan, Dan's camping area. And behold, it is west of kareth Jerim, which is still, from our perspective, north and west. So they're just setting up camp in order to invade this territory and city. And they passed on there from the hill country of Ephraim, and they came to the house of Micah. How many people came to Micah's house the first time? Five spies. How many people are now encamped at Micah's house? 600. And not just spies, but 600 men of war. Then the five men who had gone out to scout the county of Lash said to their brothers, Do you know that in these houses there is an ephod? Household gods, a carved image, and a metal image? No surprise, the spies would have seen what was in Micah's house. They talked to the priest. They would have maybe even stayed there and lodged there for a while. And they brought up the fact, do you know there's stuff in Micah's house? And at first glance, you might go, I think they're telling the leaders of Dan all of this information about these idolatries and superstitions of Micah because they're going to confront Micah and encourage him as another brother. Hey, Micah, you got to get rid of these idols in your life. Idols are no good. If you're thinking that, you're giving way too much credit to the Danites because I think the spies are telling them all these things for one purpose only. Hey, if you want some easy stuff on the way to this city... We can take it from him. He's got lots of stuff set up there. Easy prey, easy target, easy money, and we got the people to do it now. Before there were only five of us, now there's 600. But at first glance, you might go, oh, maybe they're warning them about idolatry. It's not the case. Then they turned aside, verse 15, and came into the house of the young Levite at the home of Micah and asked him about his welfare. 
talking to the priest. Now the 600 men of the Danites, armed with their weapons of war, stood by the entrance of the gate, entrance to the household of Micah. And the five men who had gone out to scout the land went up and entered and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, and the metal images which the priest stood by at the entrance. And the, while the priest stood by at the entrance of the gate with 600 men with weapons of war. If you remember, all of these carved images and ephod, which means something made that's worshipped, um, are all made of what metal? Do you remember from last week what metal they were made out of? silver. And we're talking years and years of fortune of silver made by Micah's mom because Micah admitted that he had stole. You have to go back to chapter 17 to read that whole story. But these are not just simply wood and stone. These are precious metals. And so they're looking for a payday. And they asked the priest, you know, uh, what's, what's going on here? Verse 19, they said to him, keep quiet Put your hand on your mouth and come with us to be to us a father and a priest. Is it better for you to be a priest to the house of one man or a priest to the tribe and clan in Israel? And the priest's heart was glad. He took the ephod and the household gods and the carved image and went along with the people. I'm beginning to suspect that this was not really wasn't really a good priest. I don't think he really was a man of God. I don't think God was the one he served, that he worshipped and adored. I don't think he really led those households very well in worship of God, especially if he's got idols and statues and things made in order to worship. I'm not sure that's the guy I'd want to go along and say, be my spiritual leader. See, you can see his heart once he is presented with, do you want to serve a small number of people or an entire nation, tribe. And his heart goes immediately to, hey, if you want me to come, I'll come, and I'll also bring with you or bring with me all the idols that Micah has. So it really wasn't a difficult challenge. Technically, I guess you'd say the Danites did not steal from Micah. It was the priest that Micah had hired that stole. But Reading between the lines, both parties are absolutely guilty. Verse 21, next section. I got to hand it to Micah. He is a brave man, although misguided. So they turned and departed, putting the little ones of the livestock and the goods in front of them. Then they had gone a good distance from the home of Micah, and the men who were in the houses near Micah's house were called out, and they overtook the people of Dan. And they shouted to the people of Dan, who turned aside and said to Micah, What is a matter with you, that you've come with such a company? And he said, You take my gods that I made, and the priest. Just the... I don't even know how he said that sentence with a, with a straight face. You take my gods that I made. You made the gods... You're using the definition God really wrong there if you made them. But he goes on. You took the gods that I made and the priest and go away. What have I left? How then do you ask me what's the matter with you? 
And the people of Dan said to him, Do not let your voice be heard among us, lest angry fellows fall upon you, and you lose your life with the lives of your household. Then the people of Dan went their way, and when Micah saw that they were too strong for him, he turned and went back to his home. How well are Micah's gods protecting him right now? How well are Micah's gods and superstitions comforting him? They're not. Because they give no power whatsoever to you. They give no protection, no security, no wisdom, no help. You made it. Just in and of itself, the sarcasm of trying to depend upon something you made is ridiculous. And of course, it doesn't help with Dan sitting there as this bully going, you better shut up because you keep talking and we're going to have some friends of ours who are not so polite kill you. Micah does perhaps the second wisest thing he's ever done in life. Realized he was beat and he went home. The first thing he did that was really wise was admit that he stole stuff from his mom and gave it back. That was good. But this is the second best thing he's ever done. Realized when he was defeated and went home. He should have been dripping with guilt on that trip back home, knowing that all the pleading with his gods that he made didn't help him one bit. He should have realized it at that moment. But he continues... And the Danites now try their best to do what they do best and take the easy road in verse 27. But the people of Dan took what Micah had made and the priest who belonged to him, and they came to Lash, to a people quiet and unsuspecting, and struck them with the edge of the sword and burned the city with fire. I knew it was an easy target. They knew it was an easy target. That's why they targeted them. But yet they still didn't do what God had commanded them, is take the land of their inheritance. And there was no deliverer to the land because it was far from Sidon. And they had no dealings with anyone. It was in the valley that belongs to Beth Rehob, and they rebuilt the city and lived in it. And, the name, and they named the city Dan after Dan their ancestor, who was born to Israel. But the name of the city was Laash at first. And the people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves, and Jonathan, the son of Gerashim, son of Moses, and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites, Danites until the day of the captivity of the land, which would have been about 800 years later. So they set up Micah's carved image that he made as long as the house of God was in Shiloh. It's a little bit of sad commentary about this tribe. The sad commentary is that for almost 800 years, they lived in idolatry and in disobedience. After a while, it just becomes a pattern and a habit that no one questions. And if you question it, you're the odd one out. When you question, shouldn't we follow God? 
Shouldn't we obey him? Shouldn't we serve him? Why are we serving man-made idols? What help did it give Micah? No help whatsoever. What help do they think they're going to get in serving the gods that Micah made? No help whatsoever, no security, no peace, no comfort. They are lost. Lost. And living in a lostness that is complete and engulfing of their entire culture. In Isaiah chapter 44, and we don't have time to read that at all, but in Isaiah chapter 44, I, the prophet Isaiah just begins to state the case against idolatry. Verse 9, all who fashion idols are nothing, and they that delight in it do not profit. Their witness neither sees nor knows. They are put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame. The craftsmen are only human. They will be terrified, and they will be put to shame. In the entirety of that chapter, Isaiah 44, the prophet goes, what can it do? It can do nothing. Those superstitions and those idols, they profit a man nothing. But a reasonable question to ask at this moment is if idols and superstitions profit us nothing, what can profit us? I'm glad you asked. Scripture happens to have an entire chapter to answer that. In Psalm 146, and it's not one of the long psalms, it's a short psalm. In Psalm 146, it starts out by saying, Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have being. Put no confidence in princes. In a son of man, there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On the very day, he, his plans perish. Blessed is the one whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is the Lord his God, who made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in him, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets his prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bound down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourns. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. By the way of the wicked, he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations, praise the Lord. The psalmist clearly states, put no confidence in man or the things of man. Why? Why put no confidence in man or the things of man? Why? Here's a shocker. They die. Each and every one of them die. But not God. God rules and reigns and lavishes his people with peace and praise forever and ever and ever. Paul, when faced with a lot of struggles in his life, went to the Lord on numerous occasions and said, help me, Father, help me. 
Give me comfort, give me strength. Take these things away from me that I'm struggling with. And Paul ended up understanding that when he is weak, he becomes strong. Meaning that when he understands he needs help and cries out to God, God answers and God brings redemption. Now, we happen to be able to celebrate this morning some baptisms, which we're going to do in just a few minutes. And if the band wants to come up, they're fine to do that now. But the baptisms and Paul's crying out is very much the same. What Micah needed to do is very much what's happening in a baptism. What the tribe of Dan needed to do is very much what's happening in baptism. It is crying out and saying, Lord, I need you. You need to be the one who rescues me and saves me. You need to be my all in all. You need to be my rescuer. You need to be my savior, my Lord. You need to be my all in all. You need to be there for me as my God because I can't trust in myself and I can't trust in others. And that leaves me with no one except Jesus. And the song that we're going to be singing is perhaps one of the best praise songs that summarizes the gospel. As you read and sing and hear these words sung, it takes you through the entirety of the gospel message. And these people that are being baptized this morning have admitted, I need something greater than myself. I need Jesus. He's all I have because without him, my life would be maybe easy but there's no protection, there's no salvation, there's no freedom from the suffering and pain of the consequences of sin except for Jesus. And so they're putting their name on the line saying, this is mine. And as we sit here and we witness this, it is a moment of great rejoicing that more people have acknowledged, God, you need to be my God and I will be your people. It is a time of great rejoicing that their sins are forgiven. It is a time of great rejoicing that their Savior rules and reigns. And it is a time of great rejoicing that that message can be yours. And I have great confidence that it is yours. But if it isn't, this is a time to reflect. Am I putting my trust and confidence in others? Or is it in God? Let's stand. Let's sing.
Give them a quick hug. They still may be wet, but that's part of the joy of celebrating baptisms together. God bless everyone. See you next week. Bye.